Hello and welcome to another Care Home Management Magazine podcast. I'm Alan Rustad. Today, we're asking the question, who would buy a care home? And equally, how do you sell a care home? The whole question of buying and selling a care home and all the elements contained therein is what we shall be examining over the next 45 minutes or so. As ever, this podcast is kindly sponsored by RotorCloud, online software that makes managing your care team's rotors, timesheets and annual leave easy. I'm delighted to welcome our three contributors today who know more than a thing or two about buying and selling care homes as we look at the state of the current care home market and how it may have changed as a result of the pandemic. Joining me today, I have Rob Kinsman, who's Regional Director of Christie & Co., Jimmy Johns, Director of Christie Finance, and Faisal Dala, a partner at legal firm Hempson's. So thank you all for joining me. Just before we get fully underway, to give our listeners a little bit more about the three of you, perhaps in about 30 seconds or so, you can introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit more about your companies. So uh, Rob, could you lead us off, please? Thanks, Alan. Yes, my name is Rob Kinsman. I'm the Regional Director of Christian Co. Um, I manage a team of healthcare agents across the south of the UK, and we regularly sell over 50% of the individually transacted care homes in the market. I've got over 20 years experience in the sale of healthcare businesses, and they are predominantly elderly, but we cover specialist home care and supported living businesses as well. Great. Thank you very much indeed. And Jimmy, uh, Christie Finance, which is a kind of offshoot of Christine Co., isn't it, I think? Yes. Christie Finance has been established about 40 years now. We're a sister company to Christie & Co., so effectively we work alongside our colleagues in, in Christie & Co., supporting clients to either acquire, um, expand their businesses, um, recapitalize, or, or just raise finance for various things that they may want to do. So we, we have uh, worked alongside them for quite some time, um, supporting Rob and his team, and uh, alongside the Northern team. Um, myself, I've been in the commercial space for about 20 or so years, worked for a bank before Christie Finance, um, and have been here for seven years as of yesterday, I think. Congratulations. <laughs> well done. Thank you very much indeed, Jimmy. And last but not least, Faisal at uh, Hempson's. Yep, um, I'm Faisal Dahler. I'm a partner at Hempson's. So Hempson's are a specialist uh, health and social care law firm covering all different legal aspects um, across, across the uh, health and social care space. Um, and I lead up the team um, that deals with the sale and purchase of care homes. Um, advising a variety of different clients across the country um, on um, sales and acquisitions. And we also assist in other aspects such as employment law, property law, and the legal aspects of corporate restructuring and uh, lending and security with, with care homes. That's great. Thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome to all three of you. Let's take a look then at the latest situation, the market situation, because I know Christine Co. they bring out a report every year and the uh, latest one uh, looking back at 2022 has not long been out uh, the last couple of months or so so let's begin with uh, you on this one uh, I, I think Rob and uh, to find out really you'd think you know after all that the, the system has been through over the last few years pandemics and one thing and another who on earth would want to buy a care home but it seems that the market looks pretty vibrant at the moment. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, it's a fascinating picture at the moment. I think it's fair to say in 2022, we saw a post-pandemic bounce of activity. Obviously, there was a number of years of subdued transactional activity. And last year, 
We sold about 45% more care homes than we did in 2021. Values on average increased by about 3% last year. Um, we had a, a huge number of um, buyers that, that came out of the woodwork and really wanted to expand their portfolios. Social care market operates in the operational real estate market, like pubs, hotels, uh, and, and the operational real estate market in the last few years has definitely seen an increase in institutional investment as well as private investment as the margins can uh, are generally higher than in more mature sectors. We achieved deals at over 100% of our asking price on average last year. And you know we really did see a trem- tremendous level of activity. We then had the mini budget in the autumn. Um, and it's fair to say that the increased interest rates off the back of the turmoil there um, caused the market to pause in Q4 last year as providers, banks and investors really wanted to see where interest rates and yields settled down. So in general, it was a very strong market last year. And then we saw a a sort of pause in activity in Q4. Um, At the start of this year, it's worth saying that that actually, despite increased interest rates, we have seen an increased number of deals, for example, across the South. We've done about 30% more deals across the South this year in terms of putting deals into solicitors' hands. So there remains strong appetite, but it is a more cautious, price-sensitive market. Now we're in a slightly different world of increased debt costs and inflation as well. That's interesting. And just to, to come um, to Jimmy on the financial side, are you finding that that in terms of people looking to buy, we'll come to selling in a minute, but looking to buy at least, that uh, banks are being much more cautious in the way they uh, approach these deals? I think it's it's fair to say that Q4 did affect the market considerably with the mini budget. And, and as Robert alluded to, there was a bit of a pause. Um, and banks or funders and, and the lending market tend to react quite quickly when there is a, a bit of a shock, um, and particularly more so in the care sector. They will look at whatever is sort of what I call flavour of the month at that given moment in time. So the increase in utility costs, et cetera, has all meant that lenders will now spend far more time on the due diligence, looking through effectively whether or not the debt can be repaid through the profits of the business, um, which has just meant that it's, it is a more challenging market for a applicant to achieve funding. But, but there is still funding available. Um, it just may not be on the terms that you might have got probably 12 months ago. And Faisal, from your experience from the, the legal side of things, what uh, Rob and Jimmy have just been saying, does that tie in with your experience? Yeah, absolutely, very much. Um, that all rings true. I think um, what we are seeing, as Jimmy has just said, on, on, on the lending side, whilst there is still lender appetite, it, it's there with caution, um, and therefore things are just taking a little bit longer to get through. Um, we're obviously advising buyers to be very thorough with their legal due diligence, You know, looking at contracts, supply chains, utilities, how long are they tied in for, what's happening to fixed prices, um, and, and lenders and their legal teams are scrutinising all of that a lot more as well. So they're asking us, you know, what legal due diligence has been done. Um, and that factors into their process. So you know, the appetite, I think as everyone's saying, the appetite's there, but everyone are just everyone's approaching the market with a bit more caution. That's interesting to see. And coming back to you there, Rob, I, I noticed you mentioned achieving more than 100% of the asking prices. What's determining that? Is there competition when a care home goes on the market between buyers 
willing to snap it up if it's the right place at the right uh, price at the right uh, location. I think what we saw last year, Alan, was a lack of supply in the market. And we saw uh, a number of buyers come back into the market post-pandemic. Um, a lot of providers saw a rebound in the performance of their care homes last year. Um, debt finance was available at really keen rates prior to the mini budget. And there was a lack of available stock. And I think because of that, we had a bit of scarcity and we had competitive bidding on many of the opportunities. And that just pushes the price forward. So I don't think we're going to see as robust pricing this year. I think we, we've got an increased number of clients wanting to come to the market. So our instruction levels this year are 50% up on they, where they were last year. So we've got an increasing number of care home owners perhaps looking to retire. They might have had retirement plans for the last sort of five years, but have been unable to do so because of the pandemic. So we're seeing an increasing number of new mandates coming. So there's, that's a great opportunity for those looking to expand. But I don't think we're going to see that scarcity that we had last year. And as far as buyers are concerned, is it still the, the big groups hoovering up more opportunities? Or, or is it the individual who suddenly says, I want to run a care home? That's the re- that's a really good question, because mm-hmm. I think it's, it's the buyer profile, isn't it, that drives all, all the activity. And I think what we've seen in the last few years is first-time buyers, it's, it's become more difficult for new entrants. So last year, about 10% of our deals were to new entrants in the sector. And historically, that's probably been around 15 to 20%. So we have seen a decrease in new entrants coming into the sector. And I think that's because it's, it's more challenging for funding. And Jimmy will touch that uh, on that in a minute. And, and the sort of regulatory burden is more difficult as well. Having said that, we are seeing a more sophisticated first-time buyer, those with perhaps medical or financial backgrounds. So they, they are able to come into the market, but they're going to have they're going to have um, greater obstacles to over, overcome to acquire a registered setting. As ever, last year, the majority of our buyers were existing providers and, and sort of what we call regional multiples. They accounted for about 60% of our deals. So they're, they're buyers that um, have got a number of a cluster of care homes in an area. They've got good relationships with the commissioners, good relationships with the banks, and, and they're always on the lookout, opportunistic for, to expand their portfolios. And, and they made up the majority of our buyer pool last year. And then increasingly, actually, last year, we saw the national corporate providers and funds and REITs come back into the market post-pandemic, and they accounted for about 30% of our buyers last year. Um, We've got, you know, the UK is still seen as an attractive place to invest for international funds, pension funds and REITs. So last year, I think we we handled a good number of high-quality assets last year, and as a result, that, that attracted interest from those funds and REITs. So it's, it's, it's a mixed buyer pool, and we're probably going to see the same this year. Faisal, let me come to you on that. Is it a mixed buyer's pool as far as you're concerned from what you're seeing, or, or uh, further up north in the country, if I can put it that way, uh, are attitudes slightly different? No, I'd agree with, Rob, with what Rob has just said there, you know, quite a, a mixed and diverse pool. You know, we, we've seen people um, taking a lot of interest in this market is something that's new to them. People with medical finance background, as Robert said, this would be their first care home acquisition. You know, they're seeing opportunities in the market, where, looking at where the gaps are. So, no, I'd agree. I'd, I'd say for us, I mean, we operate on a national basis and we're working on transactions across the country, um, not seeing huge geographic differences. Um, I think the, the, the attitude of buyers is becoming a bit more robust because of the risks and the challenges they're facing. 
Um, and, and sometimes that, that creates an issue in terms of matching the right sellers with the right buyers. So you know, some buyers might take a cautious approach and say, well, look, I'll pay X on day one, but I might want to have some deferred consideration or an escrow, which would be released if the business, you know, um, yields certain profits or revenue over the next couple of years. And that creates a friction for someone who's looking to retire and exit and take all their money on day one. You know, another cautious approach might be that the buyer says, I want someone in the seller team to remain for a period <coughs> post uh, completion, you know, for a transitionary phase. If someone's looking for a clean, outright exit, again, that's not compatible. So it's, 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 I think that a part of the challenge is matching the right sellers with the right buyers and just making sure everyone's objectives are aligned. And Jimmy, do you, do you find that as well? And, and, and in terms of what people are having to pay, obviously we know interest rates have, have gone up. Uh, I don't know if you've got a crystal ball or whether you advise your clients to get one, but, but how on earth uh, do you look even perhaps you know a year, two years into the future? Are those interest rates as high now as they're going to be? Well, I mean, it's again, that's a good question. I mean, I rewrite my opinion every five minutes, I think. Um, and the end of Q4 last year, it was even quicker. So I think, yeah, I mean, Rob and Fasal have, have both highlighted several points around the buyers in the market. The, the level of sophistication is greater um, and lenders do look for, I suppose, the medical professional is a preferred route if it's a first time buyer. But when you come around to the bank due diligence and the application process, trying to forecast the cost of funds over the next 12, 18, 24 months is extremely difficult. Um, I suppose my personal opinion is, is we're probably in and around the height of the base rate. Um, and there may be some fluctuations up and down, but we're never going to see it go. And I say never cautiously. Um, it, it won't get down to the 0.1s and the 0.5s again, um, unless there is some dramatic change in the economy. I think the Bank of England like to manage rates around the 4 to 5% to be able to hopefully influence inflation as the time moves on. So depending who you listen to, by the end of the year, we might see some drops, sort of quarter of a percent here or there. Um, but I think we're at, at a level where the, the Bank of England feels comfortable and lenders are now looking at things slightly differently when they assess lending. So they're, they're, some lenders are now looking at reducing what they call their debt service criteria. So they're, they're bringing that down a little bit to, to take into account now that your interest rate is no longer three and a half percent all in. It's much more like seven to nine. So that's an added pressure when looking at the profits of the business. Is the debt affordable effectively? Well, I was going to ask you, because for, for those who may not be that savvy with finance, when you talk about debt service criteria mm -hmm. and that big difference uh, mm -hmm. that you've just talked about there, how is that evaluated? How, how do the banks work that out? There's really two ways to look at it and without going through my old banking exams. It's it's quite straight. There's, there's the two ways is a multiple of profits to, to hit a certain level, and that might be four or five times profits that they might lend against. The, the really old school and the traditional way of doing it is, well, debt your debt loan repayments on an annual basis are covered by the profits after dividends, et cetera. So a bit of an EBITDA calculation. They'd expect that to be covered by about one and a half times. A lot of lenders will manage that and increase that depending on the risk. So first-time buyers are a slightly more higher risk category, so they might expect two times cover. If the home is a bit of a turnaround, then again, they might hold it two, two times. So 
great for a new entrant to the market. It, it is tougher um, and the expectations are higher, um, but we've been successful by mitigating a lot of these with either their quality of their CV, the, the level of or the, the, the competencies that the team around them um, for a existing operator. And I think where Rob's alluded to around regional operators probably picking up a lot of the the transactions and looking for a deal effectively, those regional operators, which I would go down to sort of having two homes at the moment and maybe looking for their third, fourth or fifth, will, will find the funding process, I wouldn't have said easier, but the, the risks are reduced because you have a level of experience that, that a first-time buyer doesn't have and, and the perception is from a funder, you, you kind of know what you're doing. And so, Rob, from your experience, when those first-time buyers come along, you mentioned about having a, a medical background. Supposing they have very limited financial background, how would you advise them and and, um, and how what direction would you point them in? I think it's crucial, Alan, at the moment that new entrants have the right sort of buy-side team, have, have a decent you know, finance broker, have a decent lawyer, decent accountant that can give them the advice to set up in the right way to enable them to deliver on a deal. And that's that's absolutely crucial. And actually, that perhaps includes, you know, a consultant to advise them on the CQC application, which in itself can be, you know, difficult. So I think it's getting the right advisors on board early on to understand exactly what the transaction will look like and what you should be, you know, assessing in delivering on a deal. And as far as buying a care home goes, is every care home viable? Do some come to the market, which you just think we're never going to find a seller for this because of various conditions, because it may have been run down, it needs work or whatever it may be. Is every care home actually uh, sellable? You put me on the spot there, haven't you? I think <laughs> I, I, what, what we are seeing, Alan, is an increased number of, of care home closures. Um, and and that, that's an issue in the sector. I think the reality is smaller care homes where margins are are tighter because you just don't have the economies of scale have become more challenging to run in this environment where you've seen inflationary pressures with utility costs and, and staffing and everything else. But we have been talking about the pressures on smaller care homes for 20 years now, and there are still lots of really well-run care homes of around 20 beds that provide excellent care and are commercially viable. So it's easy to, I think, pigeonhole the smaller care home category as, as, a, as a sort of an issue in the sector. However, when you look at the care home closures in the market last year, I think there were about 250 closures. And on average, those care homes that closed were about 28 beds in size. And there were about um, 123 new care home openings last year. And on average, they were about 55 beds in size. So, you know, the movement is to larger care homes. I think the reality is when you look at the profile of the sales that we conclude, you know, last year we concluded the sale of a 10 bed residential care home. Um, and, you know, there is no doubt that there's a smaller buyer pool for that type of facility. But, you know, there are still buyers out there. And, and, and actually a lot, of, a lot of buyers these days are actually looking for a more boutique, homely environment to invest in because they believe that actually the, the baby boomer generation coming through might actually prefer a more homely, less institutional environment, but it still needs to stack up commercially. And there is no doubt that those, those smaller care homes, the margins are smaller and you're going to need to be hands-on to make it work. That's interesting. And uh, we'll come on to, to new builds in just a few moments. But Faisal, let me ask you, you're, you're a man who structures deals in one way or another, whether it be 
deferred payments, contingent payments, whatever it may be. Do you find the structure of deals is changing greatly at the moment? I haven't seen any huge sort of shift. I think going back to a point that Rob said, that sometimes what we are seeing is people not understanding the, the, the structure of what they're purchasing um, and also putting in place the right structure for themselves so and that will impact a lot of things like for example the cqc registration that's required for the transaction so i'm not seeing you know new types of structures per se but we are seeing sometimes you know existing ownership structures are a little bit complicated and buyers not understanding from the outset what they need to be doing and as rob says that's why it's really critical to get in place the right legal advisors accountants etc you know for example is the care home um, operated through a limited company if so should you be buying the shares in that limited company you know where does the cqc registration sit all those sorts of things are really critical to, to making sure the structure is right from day one and then therefore you know enabling you to ensure that the, the transaction can happen in a timely way yes i'm sure that's that's important and we'll, we'll look at that a bit more in, uh, in 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 a few minutes time i just wanted to mention though with with rob about uh, new bills because i've been around various new build properties uh, they seem to be getting bigger, larger. Um, you were just talking about the more boutique element, but the, the the big groups. I can think of a few big groups who are still building very big care homes. Is that is that the trend that you can see going forwards? Absolutely, but I think there is a an optimal size that is deemed to be um, a good balance of economies of scale and in terms of staffing. Uh, capabilities. So, you know, we have seen in the past care homes of over 100 beds being developed, you know, in the sort of early 2000s. And I think now, you know, the optimum size is deemed to be around the sort of 65 to 70 bed mark. And we're seeing an increasing number of these new builds come into the regions as the market's more saturated in the southeast. That's interesting. And and, uh, will that spread outside the, the southeast as well, do you think? This is a sort of $64 million question, really, because I think there is an acute shortage of care home bed spaces in the UK. We've got an aging population. We've got an increased, you know, care needs, more sophisticated acute care needs. And we don't have the number of facilities coming through into the market to cater for that. And that's why we've obviously got the bed blocking in the NHS as well, because we just don't have the capacity in the social care sector. And and unfortunately, economically, these new builds really only work where you've got um, the affluence in the local population to have a decent supply of self-funded clients. And so in areas where the provider would be more reliant on local authority fees, which are significantly lower in the main than the self-funded fees, it's very difficult for commercially a new build care home to stack up, you know, you know, in terms of the returns that the provider would get. And uh, Jimmy, when you look at uh, new builds and people who want to build them, does that present you with any particular problems as opposed to a simple care home transaction? I think when you when you when you're looking at new builds to, in, in isolation, then then it really does come down to experience. It's not something that I would go into lightly as a I suppose a first time builder or developer. Um, I think the market and certainly our care development team would would probably support that they've got a a there is a base of clients that know what they're doing and will will build a home of around the sixty five to seventy bed that seems to be the sweet spot. They'll they'll build them to a quality and criteria that then an operator can take over. So I think that's quite a very niche market um, that is quite well set up. 
Um, from a existing operator, they'll look to expand through probably acquisition more so than anything else. Um, and that's certainly something we did more transactions in 2022 than, than I've ever seen before um, with regards to those, those regional or multiple operators buying the homes that perhaps are coming on the market as opposed to building. Um, and what a lot of these, some of these multiple operators are now doing is effectively churning their stock. So they are perhaps selling the smaller homes whilst buying the bigger ones. So you'll start to see that certainly some of the clients that I'm talking to are, are trying to, to move up the ladder. So look at the 30 bed plus homes, the, the more purpose built ones, because they know that they can they can manage and get a better return off of them. Um, and, and effectively, they, they can quite often be easier to fund against the, the financing is lenders are much more comfortable with a with a home that is either purpose built, it's all on suite, the rooms are of a decent size, it, it just means it's it's a better quality stock for them to lend against. And Faisal, do you find that too, that the banks, when they're being asked for money, they look at the uh, the bricks and mortar, uh, and they're giving an easier ride perhaps to the, the new builds rather than the simple uh, care home that's being passed from one owner to another? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, um, there's the whole regulatory angle to, to remember when it comes to new builds as well. There's a lot more box ticking and checking for lawyers and banks in that. So we're looking at things like building regs and planning, you know, health and safety. Have you got the right of CQC registration and other licenses? So from a regulatory and legal perspective, there's a lot more work that goes into that. Banks have to um, have a lot more scrutiny on that. And I think that, you know, it, as you say, it just creates that sort of tension with it being a bit of more of a complex transaction than than, than a more established build, if you like. You're listening to the Care Home Management Magazine podcast. Providing the best quality care means having the right people in the right place at the right time. And that's exactly where RotorCloud can help. RotorCloud makes managing your care team's rotors, attendance, and annual leave easy. With its simple drag-and-drop planner, you'll be creating rotors in minutes, while its built-in budgeting tools mean you'll know exactly how much you're spending on staffing before sending the rotor out. It could even help you reduce your agency bill. Start your 30-day free trial today by visiting rotorcloud.com chm and see how much easier organising your care team can be. Let's move on perhaps to Jimmy's area particularly as regards the money. And you were talking a little bit about cost of borrowing and debt service and all the rest of it. Banks generally of um, cautious beings. Is there a big change? I mean, obviously, we know the interest rates have gone up, but the actual attitudes that banks are displaying, do you see any difference there at the moment, Jimmy? It's it's interesting. I've worked in, in particularly in care now for the last sort of seven or eight years, and, and it's a sector like no other when it comes to funding. And I think a lot of that is down to the regulatory and reputational risks that the, the sector sort of carries. And, and quite often you're talking to clients around the fact that, look, if, you, if you're going into this, the way in which you operate that business can quite often be life or death decisions. And that reputational risk is what the banks and funders are acutely aware of. 
So when they're assessing the the finance, not only are they looking at it from a commercial perspective, um, they've got to also look at the individuals more so than ever before. Can they deal with the CQC or the CIW? Do they do they know how or the consequences of getting this wrong wrong? Because it can be quite severe, um, and that's pretty unique to the sector. Having said that, it's always been a sector that a lot of lenders do like to be involved in. Um, They like the social responsibility aspect of it. Generally speaking, a well-run home can be relatively profitable, um, but that does double back to the, the quality of the management. What tends to change is lenders will come in and out, will have new challenges come in, um, and they'll identify care as a sector to get into because, as Rob alluded to, it's operational real estate. The the underlying assets, generally speaking, are pretty strong. So you, you've got a decent building within that, that that traditionally lenders do like to lend against a building. Um, and I think when we talk about bricks and mortar value and lenders lending against that, you've got a difference two kind of different criteria from a lender where they'll look at lending against the whole value of the business or lending purely against the building. Um, And that's just two very different types of transactions that sometimes people don't fully understand and and even lenders don't fully understand. And I I think, Faisal, do you find that as well, that some are uh, are just concerned with the bricks and mortar, but others are more widely on the service that's being delivered? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and a lot of lenders will look very closely at the latest CQC report and ratings, you know, what's what's the history behind that? Has the the home got um, a a good sort of... um, report rating with the CQC historically, have any um, action points been identified and and have they been dealt with um, appropriately? So, you know, yes, I I think I I very much agree with everything Jimmy has said. I think from a legal perspective, we are seeing um, scrutiny over, you know, not just bricks and mortar, but the the history of the service provision and, you know, is the business keeping its regulator, i.e. the CQC, happy? And if not, any problems that are being identified are they being actioned? And, and if not, if, if there's a home that's got a, a real rec- a bad record with the CTC, is the buyer aware? And what can they do to turn it around once they've taken over? And that, that's going to be part of their business plan. The bank's going to look very carefully at that business plan and ask them, are you aware of this? Um, and what do you plan to do about it? And I would imagine, Rob, in your case, when you're, when you're looking for a buyer for a business and you come up against people who are old hands, let's put it that way, but when you're dealing with, with new hands, do you have a big education? job to do yes i think we all do on on the cell and and the buy side team absolutely and it's just just sort of feeding back to faisal's point on cqc i think that that sort of feeds into sort of the preparation for sale and if there are issues with the cqc you might have a downgrade in your report to you know requires an improvement or even inadequate then there's a potential you know timing point about whether that should be rectified before one goes to market so quite often we engage with owners well ahead of the point at which they are going to launch to market and we'd recommend operators also engage with lawyers and and accountants too to actually prepare the business for sale and that CQC regulatory bit is more important than it ever has been so there is a lot of hand holding that goes um into a sale process pre launch um, and then obviously throughout the marketing and then also for, for buyers as well. And and that sort of buy side sort of guidance is, is, a, is a big teamwork, really. And Jimmy, do you find uh, the whole sale and buying process 
how long does that take these days on average is there is there a is there a sort of median term for it or or, or do they some sell in just a few hours others take months and months to get through i don't i don't want to scare anyone off <laughs> um, but oh, when, go on. I, mean, I mean when i mean rob's rob's exactly right and and i think we've all talked around that sort of buying team and if you look at when someone comes to the market to buy something particularly in care having that right team around you is so important and we advise obviously christy and co around the, the quality of that buyer and the level of cash they might have and who's supporting them but we spend a huge amount of time talking to the buyer around right do, do you understand as the sales alluded to what you're buying and what the structure looks like and what structure works for you and dealing with the right solicitor that is in the sector and understands the regulator um, and has experience in the due diligence expectations from a lender is so important. It it really, really is. Um, And then we will sit as an advisor alongside that buyer hand in hand and walk them through the process so we will work with the solicitors we will work with the sales agent um we sometimes will work with the seller to provide updates in terms of where we are the progress of the transaction as we've alluded to earlier the due diligence now from a bank or funder is far greater than it's ever been so that that just takes time to to put something together for a buyer um, I think we all get nervous if the buyer sort of comes to market thinking it will happen in five minutes um, because it, it it won't. When you're looking at the acquisition and you're dealing with a regulator, that can be anything up to 12 weeks for them to register or, or transfer the, the CQC position. So that in itself adds time to the transaction. Funders will will take time. So so the reality is, is that you're you're looking at a transaction which is a months months as opposed to days or weeks to complete and and it's just about providing the right team around you and looking at it as well from a first time buyer perspective and a, a and a proven and competent operator so someone who's got homes both need a good team around them the first time buyer will need possibly more support as they enter the market because they may never have done a commercial transaction and a commercial transaction is very different from buying your house to a competent operator that is expanding may not have been through the funding process for a period of time and it has considerably changed over the past 12 to 18 months i think the due diligence the expectations the level of sophistication that a funder now expects from an operator is far greater than it has ever been before. Um, and I think that can be a bit of a shock to an existing operator. And you quite often will hear the sort of phrase of, well, I didn't have to do that last time, or my bank never asked me for that. Okay, we'll come on to look at the seller's perspective in just a moment. Let me just throw one more question to each of you before we do. And that is obviously sometimes deals collapse. They don't go through as you hope they might. Uh, let me ask each of you in turn, is there a common reason why that should happen or or do they all founder for different reasons? Let me, let me begin with you, Jim, Jimmy, there. Touch words. Um, I, I, I haven't had many deals collapse. What I have had is deals that become more challenging than when we first started them. Um, and I can give a, a good recent example of where we've we've had an operator buying a second home. So they're, they're, a, they're a proven operator, albeit pretty young in their journey, looking at buying that second. Um, and we got the latest management information on that second home. And the second home's 
performance had somewhat deteriorated, um, which meant the transaction became unaffordable from a fund from a funding market's perspective. Um, now, my client was keen to expand quite rapidly. And what we've managed to do is find a third home and we've bolted a package together. So rather than buying the one, we're now buying the two. And because the, sec- the, the third home effectively has a better income stream, it plugs the gap of the second home that had deteriorated slightly. So whereas we'd looked at it and gone, well, actually, that transaction very well could have either fallen apart or become quite expensive because the the, the funders that might have might have done it would have been far more pricier. We're now looking at a transaction of three homes, which actually is more attractive to the overall funding market. And we're now attracting better um, terms and conditions than we were originally. So we just have to be smart and, and thinking on our feet of how we structure deals and put things together. But it comes down to the motivation of the buyer in regards to what they're looking to do. I get it, yes. And, and Rob, is that your experience too, that sometimes a bit of creativity is need, needed when you're not just dealing with one sale, maybe you're, you're dealing with two or three all at the same time in the same bundle? A- absolutely. The deal management part of, of our our job at Christian Co has become a lot more involved over the last few years as, as you know, you need to be think on your feet and, and a deal can look different, you know, at the end than it did at the start. But sort of going back to your query, I think, the main challenges are the performance of the target business. You know, if, the, if that performance, occupancy, profit, agency costs, you know, materially change, that can have an impact. And CQC as well, whether there's a downgrade in the CQC rating, um, all of which will have an impact on the appetite for the buyer and more, and just as importantly, the appetite from the lender to make the deal happen. And Faisal, your, is that your experience as well, that uh, you have to be a bit more creative than perhaps you were a few years ago? Yeah, I think everything Jimmy and uh, Rob have said very much rings true for, uh, for us from a legal perspective. I mean, it's extremely rare that a transaction would, would fall through because of something that's cropped up in legals. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we find, now let's say you've got a bit of a, a, a wonky issue on the title or something, you know, that can all be rectified with things like indemnity insurance or whatever. So we might find some things in our legal due diligence, but there's normally a solution for them. So as, as everyone said here, it's about being creative. Sometimes, you know, we're, we're seeing things that come out of financial due diligence, for example, that come as a bit of a surprise to the buyer. And they look at that and they think, hmm, we might need to revisit the price or the structure of the transaction. I think I alluded to earlier, you know, people are using um, escrow arrangements or, you know, paying up front and then having a deferred consideration. And, and if something crops up in financial due diligence or something, that might be a solution for it. So you're right. It's about being creative. It's about coming up with solutions. We're not seeing transactions collapse per se. They might slow down and then we might need to be creative to get them back up and running again. And Faisal, I noticed in the, the notes uh, that you put together before we did this podcast, one one interesting element which people sometimes kind of brush over or, or ignore, and that's the seller in all this. Now, how important is it in many cases for the seller to stay on at least for the first year or two before that, uh, before he totally steps away and leaves it to the new buyer? Yeah, I think in my experience, that very much depends on the, the type of buyer. Um, so th- if this is someone's first care home purchase um, and they're nervous around day-to-day operational management, it, it's going to be very important to them to have the, the vendor stay on for a period to sort of, you know, show them the ropes, if you like, and and do that uh, transitionary phase and and do it properly. So I think it will very much depend on how hands-on or hands-off 
that the, the new owner is going to be themselves. I mean, again, if you've got a, a multi-site operator that's got a, a number of businesses um, and, you know, they may want to manage it again on an arm's length basis and it may be important to them um, for the seller to stay on. So I think it very much depends on the type of buyer. And, and that and that's why I was saying earlier on, it's, it's important, I guess, it's not always easy to do this, but to match up the right seller with the right buyer to make sure everyone's objectives are aligned and, and the expectations are realistic as well. And from your experience then, Rob, sellers uh, are most just keen to uh, get out of the business and leave it to somebody else, or, or do they still want to get involved? I think in the main, it's fair to say that when a, a seller um, wants to sell their business that they've built up over a number of years, a clean break is the preferred option. As Faisal has has explained there, I think you know there is not one template that that fits all deals, and um, I think it really does depend on you know the profile of the purchaser and and the level of involvement that the seller has on a day to day basis. Um, you know, if you're looking at a small twenty bed care home that might be owner run, the owner, for example, might well be the registered manager, and that prevents a very different challenge than, for example, if it's a portfolio where the owner takes a sort of leadership um you know oversight role rather than getting involved in day-to-day operations but it's fair to say that when when uh, an owner wants to move on a clean break is the preferred option but there's always um, ways around that to ensure that you know you can transfer the business safely and to the vendor and the purchaser's satisfaction and is that your experience as well jimmy or do you find that um uh, because a a a seller wants to leave the market completely does that affect the structure of a deal i think what what we're looking at here is um that creative making the deal work scenario it's much more focused on that first time buyer or, or individual with a lack of experience in the sector so the way in which so when we're assessing a transaction and we're looking at funders the weakest we always pull them up or I always pull them apart and look at my weakest position and if my weakest position is never run a care home never been in the sector or no exposure to it then we look to mitigate that and and one of the ways to mitigate that is some sort of seller involvement now whether that's remaining on afterwards or becoming some sort of consultant to the business that that's one way to tackle it other ways, I think, as mentioned before, is is looking at a consultancy firm to hold the hand of the, the buyer once they've completed on it. So it's just about thinking on your feet and, 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 and creating something that is attractive to a funder and, and, and filling in the gaps. That's interesting. OK, well, we've just before we wrap it up, let me uh, ask you to uh, polish off your crystal balls. If we were um, meeting again, as we well might, perhaps a year, 18 months from now, uh, let me go around all three of you. What what would be the state of play eighteen months from now? Let me give, begin with you then, Rob. More well, that's a nice, nice, easy one to finish on, Alan. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I think the social care sector has faced challenges for as long as I can remember, and and you know it's predominantly run by you know uh, entrepreneurs that are able to respond well and quickly to the challenges you know internally and and macroeconomic challenges. So. I think this year will be a more challenging year for transactions just because it's a more cautious market. I think we might see a, 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 a slowdown in the increase in, in, in values. Um, but I think the transactional market will remain um, you know, buoyant because fundamentally it's a needs-driven sector and there remains you know, a lot of investor appetite. So I remain optimistic, but cautiously so. Okay. Faisal, how about you? Yes. No, I remain optimistic. Um, and, you know, we're seeing... 
um, a real uptick in, in uh, deal activity. I think there's, there's a couple of things, you know, that will have an impact. And we've touched on some of these, but, you know, obviously staff shortages and recruitment challenges in the care sector, you know, that's leading to real difficulties in finding and retaining qualified staff. You know, how is that going to move along in the next 12 months? Likewise, cuts to local authority budgets and uncertainty around future funding models. What impact is all of that going to have? Um, and let's not forget about Brexit. That's had an impact on the workforce and supply chain for care providers. So I, I remain optimistic. I think as we've discussed here, that the funders are supportive of the sector. There's a lot of interest in the sector across a variety of different types of operators. But, but those matters that I've just outlined there will have a real bearing on that. So I remain positive, but I think a lot of it will depend on some of those factors and, and on what they do over the next 12 months. And I expect uh, also, Jimmy, you're you're well aware of those factors, but do you keep that optimistic hat on for now? Yeah, I, I would agree with both Robin Fazel. It's It is a buoyant market. Um, there are more... Um, entrepreneurial entrants coming to the market that are looking at it from a a business which is always in demand. Um, so there are a, a lot of entrants to this this market that 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 want to start care businesses or take over care businesses. I think the biggest challenge over the next 12, 18 months will be how supportive the funding market remains because it's it's always a sector that is heavily influenced by what is in the news or press on any given day um, and they react accordingly albeit rightly or wrongly um, so I think at the moment we still have a very supportive funding sector um, it changes from a day-to-day basis so one lender that's in it today may not be in it tomorrow um, so we just again have to think on our feet when we're looking at providing that finance what I do think still needs to filter through is a level of I suppose reality in in the in the adjusting adjusting finance to be expected. So we've talked about base rate. Effectively, that's four times bigger than it was before. So your debt is going to be about four times higher than it was before. As Fazel's alluded to, you've got staffing cost increases, getting staff, um, utility and inflationary increases. So overall, there is a eroding perhaps of margins. So therefore, funders may not get to the debt levels of previous years. So therefore, I think buyers will just have to look at more cash to come in and slightly different terms that maybe were previously attracted in that market. And that's all we have time for today. My thanks to Rob Kinsman from Christie & Co., Jimmy Johns from Christie Finance, and Faisal Dala of Hempson's. You've been listening to the Care Home Management Magazine podcast on buying and selling care homes, kindly sponsored by RotorCloud, software that makes managing your care team's rotors, timesheets, and annual leave easy. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion today. We have more podcasts on the way in the next few weeks, so I hope you'll join us again. But for now, it's goodbye. Goodbye.